0: Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is a transformative leader who believes in the power of creativity and technology to fuel futuristic, successful companies. With a leadership track record of empowering innovation, he has served as the dean of two medical colleges, led multiple healthcare centers, and has been named Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business and ranked number two on Modern Healthcare's Most Influential People in Healthcare. We're excited to welcome the president of Jefferson University and CEO of Jefferson Health, Dr. Stephen Clasco. So Stephen, it's great to see you again. Thank you for being with me today.
1: Thank you, Joe. And um, just want to congratulate you. If there's ever a time that we needed lifelong holistic leadership lessons, now is the time. And I think that's what you and Dale Carnegie have been all about.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And certainly you fit perfectly into our ideal of what a great inspirational transformative leader is. So, really looking forward to the conversation. You and I had a chance to talk a couple of weeks ago. You have a fascinating background, not just in terms of what you're doing right now as a CEO and leading a health system and a medical school, but also you were a DJ. You still kind of incorporate that into what you do. Share a little bit about your background and what led you to the role you're in today.
1: I've lived a lot of lives. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've told people that I have a chance to mentor, is please don't plan your future. That's a great thing about life. If you don't plan it and you just move forward and and succeed in what you do and fail in a few other things, it's exciting to see where you might end up. I did start as a DJ, and as somebody reminded me, a 25-year-old, that was when DJs made less than doctors. So I might have been better off staying in that. But I think probably the defining moment for me, I'm an obstetrician, delivered about 2,000 babies in Allentown, Pennsylvania, And, you know, I had my first aha moment back in the 1980s, 97% of OBGYNs were male. Number one performed procedure in this country was hysterectomy. Number two was C-section. And I happened to be listening to, as I remember, an old uh, male OBGYN talking about hysterectomy and saying, you know, when a a woman uh, has a small fibroid or a small tumor, just take out the uterus because after childbearing, she doesn't need it. Students are all writing that down. And I happened to be at Barnes & Noble and four of the top 10 nonfiction bestsellers were what my hysterectomy did to me, the hysterectomy hoax, how a hysterectomy ruined my life. So I left my job as a private practice obstetrician and literally started to look into psychological and sexual effects of hysterectomy, got a couple of patents about what we now use to avoid hysterectomy. So I think that was a defining moment in some ways of what I now call the no limits approach, get away from the art of the possible. And look at the art of the impossible. That's what I tell my uh, students at commencement every year. And that that led to sort of a career where in unlikely ways, I became dean of two academic medical schools, even though I didn't have a traditional academic career, did a couple of startup companies, and now I've been the president and CEO of two major systems. In Jefferson's case, the third oldest and third largest medical school in the country. So in each one of those situations, it's not what I was looking for. When I was at University of South Florida as the CEO, I thought my next job would be out in Silicon Valley. I wasn't trying, oh, what could I do and not make a mistake so that I could get a job at a place like Jefferson? It was, hey, I'm going to really do some really cool things. In the case of USF, we started the first medical school in the country. where We chose students based on self-awareness, empathy, communication skills, and cultural competence. and That was a risky venture, but that became a big part of our persona. So I think it's probably... A bit of a no limits approach to things, take a creative look and don't be afraid to look at your industry, whether it's academics or healthcare, and say, Boy, what we're doing doesn't make a lot of sense. What can we do differently?
0: You just covered a lot of really incredible thoughts, whether it's no limits mindset or talking about your defining moment. I'm curious, you know, you had this aha, it was almost existential to the extent you did practice, you get to the point, you're an OB, and all of a sudden you made this decision. What really inspired you to do that? Why did you make that decision?
1: This is back in the day when you're on call every third night, we had built a practice from six deliveries a month to about 50 deliveries a month. I was young. I thought that, you know, hey, this is a calling. <laughs> I just started to have more and more hints. We were all doing some great things. We were sort of clueless as to where things were going. I got really obsessed with Apple back in in the 80s. And actually, it was funny because I ended up leading a digital group for Apple under John Couch and Steve Jobs in the early 2000s. But I started watching that whole approach even back in the 80s and 90s of, you know, what's going to be obvious 10 years from now? And can we do it today? And I lived in an industry of healthcare that was all about what did we do 20 years ago? And I just recognized that helping women deliver their babies is an awesome thing. I felt I wanted to make more of a change in that. And when I started to do that research in psychological and sexual effects of hysterectomy and said, wow, you know, we've really missed the boat on this. Those books are right. And then I got a chance to go out to Houston and actually work with the folks that were doing things to avoid hysterectomy. I think that's what it was. It was that closed loop of, holy moly, a person or a group of people can make a difference in an industry. And that set the stage as a leader, as I moved up, of not taking anything at face value right? and asking questions. For example, why do we still accept medical students based on science, GPA, medcats, and organic chemistry grades? And then be amazed that doctors are more empathetic, communicative, and creative. And then I get somebody say, well, that's because if you can memorize 19 reasons somebody has jaundice and Dr. Hart can only memorize 15, you're a better doctor. I say, yeah, but, but now there's computers that can tell me those 19. And the last thing would be like, you tell three-year-old kids when they ask too many questions, well, that's just how we do things. And I realized at the point I got to the just how we do things, that that was something I wanted to change.
0: You strike me as someone who has tremendous curiosity and tremendous creativity, particularly as you look at problems. I mean, you worked at Apple, you're looking at how medical schools admit students and so forth. Is that something that's always been a part of you? Is that something you've developed over time?
1: We have to get away, especially in disciplines like mine of academics and healthcare, it's always been about strategy, focus, and discipline. And in some respects, I think they're important, but that's almost become middle management. I keep trying to get people to think about creativity, passion, and flexibility. I had my second aha moment in the 90s, and now I'm the chair of ob at a major department, and one of the neurosurgeons is going, you know, we just can't take all these insurers and business. I just can't understand it. I'm thinking, hey, you took out a small tumor from a little hole in the brain. You can probably figure out business. So I went to Wharton. When I graduated from Wharton and got my MBA, I got almost a million-dollar grant to look at what makes doctors different than, depending on the audience, either other people or normal people and how we handle change. And here's what we found, Joe. We found that the way we select and educate docs, we've joined a cult around four biases, an autonomy bias, a competitive bias, a hierarchy bias, and a non-creativity bias. So I got obsessed on the non-creativity piece because we're as creative as anybody else. But here's what happened. When I asked people like you or I asked entrepreneurs what got you to where you are, creativity was number one, two, or three in about 95% of the cases. When we asked doctors, it was less than 10%. It was strategy, focus, discipline. It was all the things that they need to do at three o'clock in the morning when they're deciding whether or not to deliver a baby, but all the wrong things to do as you're thinking about the world at large. At Jefferson, for example, we're the first medical school in the country that has an MD master's in design. It's a partnership with Princeton. We now make every one of our incoming students take two creativity courses. The most popular one this year was Beekeeping 101. This is like for a medical school because it's basically getting them out of that biochemistry, microbiology, animatronic, Android type thing that frankly, the new AI robots will be doing better than we do anyhow.
0: So Stephen, you've done a number of things really to encourage creativity. What are some of the ways that you've seen that have an impact at Jefferson?
1: The first is in morale and optimism, right? When I went to Wharton, I did the Wharton Executive MBA, so it was the weekend thing. And I was back then one of only three docs. So people would go to me and say, you are so lucky to be in healthcare, couple trillion dollar industry going through tsunami change. What a great time. What great opportunities. I wish I was a doctor. And I'd say, yeah, I guess that, that's pretty cool. Then I'd go to the OR lounge that Monday morning, you know, before my cases, listen to doctors go, you know, healthcare really stinks. You know, I'm telling my kids not to go into it. It was great 20 years ago. Now everything's changing. So the same inputs, but they believed that they were autonomous, competitive, hierarchical creatures. That if things changed, by definition, it would be bad for them. Whereas the Warden folks believed they were creative, and wow, you know what a great opportunity to change. So, what did it do for us? You know, in our pandemic response at Jefferson, we had the most amount of COVID patients, unfortunately, of anybody in our region. We had a 0.8 percent employee infectivity rate, one of the lowest in the nation. A lot of that was just good old-fashioned project management, frankly, and being prepared with PPE and pandemic preparedness. But a lot of that was just incredible, not-one-size-fits-all creativity. Everything from 3D printing, nasal swabs when we ran out of them because we have a design studio. We merged an academic medical center with the number three fashion design university in the country. So our fashion design students were creating these masks for morale to my nurses we had had sort of a contest for who could, among the nurses in the middle of COVID surges, respond to the Sierra song, Level Up. And then we won a national contest and our nurses were on Ellen. The fact that we were creatively built to have fun, you know, we had always communicated fun, that when a tragedy and this horrible, horrible thing happened, nothing was fun. It was a war. But folks really took that to the next level. And then it also gets your mind thinking differently. So if you remember back in the original surge, no visitors could come to hospitals because we wanted to protect PPE. We made a decision that that would be true for us, except at the end of life, family members could come because we didn't want anybody to have to say goodbye to a family member at Zoom. And at the beginning of life, birth, at least one person, the husband, the wife, the partner could come. Seemed pretty obvious to us, but you know, healthcare had always been very a one-size-fits-all and no visitor, yes, visitors, one visitor. So I think that creative approach really
0: made a difference for us. It must have, because, like you said, other people might have looked at the exact same situation. In fact, other people did look at the exact same situation, and other health systems around the country came to different conclusions about whether or not you could have visitors. When you talk about creativity, you were talking about the doctors versus the Wharton students it seems like a lot of this goes to mindset. Did you have any difficulty encouraging people to adopt a creativity mindset or what lessons did you have around how to encourage creativity in an organization? Missions matter, right? You teach that, whether it's a personal mission
1: or corporate mission. We have five academic medical centers in Philadelphia and everyone had pretty much the same uh, mission. We'll be the premier academic medical center in Philadelphia. Well, first of all, nobody really cares about that other than you and your mom. And, and, and how do you define that anyhow? So we decided, well, what if we totally looked at it differently, looked at it from an external focus and really put creativity into that? So we changed ours to we improve lives, but our vision became reimagining healthcare education discovery to create unparalleled value. Reimagining is actually in this 196-year-old entity's vision. And then it was interesting, Joe, we wanted to simplify our values. You know, a lot of people do values, they have the same 25 things. We Put everything under three values do the right thing, put people first, and be bold and think different. And to your point, here's what happened I would meet with the chairs, I'd meet with the deans, tell me how how you're doing our values. And they tell me what they were doing to do the right thing or put people first, and they stop. You get a 67%. If you remember back to uh, grade school, that's not a great grade. Oh, you were really serious about that? Be bold and think different. So, what they started to do is literally, if they weren't wired that way, They would try to find, you know, somebody in their department that really was thinking differently. And all of a sudden they encouraged that. And then probably the biggest thing I did was my first State of the Union. I said, here's the six things I said I do the first year I got here. Here's three that I think turned out pretty good. These two, I don't know what I was thinking. I must have been on drugs or something, because that really failed. And this one we'll have to see. I probably got 50 texts or emails. From faculty members or whatever. The first time that Jefferson president have ever, ever admitted that they had an idea that didn't work. But I think more importantly was the people said, well, you know, I can do that in my department and I can take a risk. And then we started, you know, wearing these Jefferson No Limits hats. Because we had always been this very cute and cuddly place. Our reputation was Jefferson's a great place to get care, of, but it's where good ideas go to die. So I had to really, really, really overcome. We weren't even at an even playing field. We were the most risk-averse place. I had to really set the stage that this was really going to be a new Jefferson.
0: So what you're talking about is a huge thing. It's a cultural change. And these are among the most challenging leadership issues that we can face. I'm sure it wasn't a straight line. It was easy. It must have been hard. So what were some of the things that were hard that you confronted? (laughs) And what are some of the strategies that you had that helped you overcome those?
1: You know, there's always the line between crazy and visionary. I had been here for three months. I decided to get out of the merger that we had had that was, at that time, really keeping us back. But we had to move our $365 million of nonprofit bonds into a home equity line. We had never even been rated before. Starting to set the stage that I'm willing to take a risk. My board said, you know, you realize this doesn't work. You're going to be the shortest tenured president in the history of the United States. So that sends a signal. Some of it, Joe, was brute force. When we started Jeff Connect telehealth program, invested $35 million in 2013. <laughs> and the chairs just about revolted because you know that meant we weren't spending on NIH funding. I talked to him about my time at Apple and Steve Jobs used to talk about the old math and the new math. And the old math, if you think about early 2000s, was computers and operating systems. The new math was this thing called digital lifestyle nobody knew about. So his people raised their hands and said, wait a second. Our only revenue is computers and operating systems. And you know what? We have 3% of the computer market. If you stop this stupid digital thing that you're doing and give us more money, we can move that to 4%. I got the exact same reception. I said, we're going to have the old math and new math. The old math is academic and clinical, inpatient revenue, outpatient revenue, NIH funding, and in-person tuition. The new math is innovation, strategic partnerships, digital transformation, and venture philanthropy. And I got the same thing. You're nuts. I mean, that's our only math. So when we did telehealth, that was brute force. I went to all 18 chairs and said, here's the story. You need to get 70% of your folks to train for telehealth, even though they didn't know what it was, and do at least one a month if you want to get your incentive this year. And after all the whining, 17 of the 18 did it. The one that didn't do it isn't with us anymore. I mean, He's on the earth. He's just not with Jefferson. But then... Once they started to like that, and once we started to get some positives, and then we got someone like Bernie Marcus that gave us $50 million because he liked our creative approach around integrative health, and Sidney Kimmel gave us $110 million to name our medical school. Those kind of things hadn't happened before. Then all of a sudden they started to say, hey, you know, this creative approach really could be a differentiator." Then the last thing we did, we started this leadership transformation group called JOLT. And we had done a study, Joe, around the country for doctors. It was pretty amazing. 20% of docs and most medical staffs will get it. They'll like you, you like them. 15% will never get it. And then there's 65% in the middle. What we found is that most people in my position spend about 45% of the time with the people that get it. They like to golf with us, we like them, they think I'm awesome. We spend 40% of our time with the docs will never get it because, you know, we can cure anybody and they're allowed. And we spend the least amount of time with the people in the middle. So at Jefferson, we decided, you know, and it's something you teach all the time, but we'll do a teach the teachers and let those people that get it become the new teachers. We'll ignore the folks that never get it. We call that administrative hospice. We just let them be comfortable and move on. And we really concentrated on that 65% in the middle. We actually had written an article for the Sloan Management that we've now gotten to the point after six years of 40, 45, and 15. And a lot of what we taught was creative approaches, no limits. So we started to change that culture. And Warden, they'd say it usually takes 10 years to really change the
0: culture. We were probably able to do that in four or five. It's fascinating because all that you're talking about right now, Stephen, goes to the heart of leadership. You started by talking about culture, you talked about the values that you had, the values that you modeled. The example that you set, whether it's around creativity or taking a risk. You also talked about brute force. There are times where leaders have to lay down the line and say, this is what we're going to do. What does leadership mean to you? How would you describe leadership and what thoughts would you have for people who aspire to be greater leaders?
1: The first thing, at least for me, has been look in the mirror. The chances of my being, Joe, an assistant professor at Jefferson let alone their president, We're about 0.0%. The over-under on, you know, my being the president of a university or dean of a medical school as a private practice OBGYN that had taken their residency in a two-resident-a-year community program were zero. So some of that is saying, okay, however I got here, I'm playing with house money, and I'm not trying to get the next academic job. So what am I good at? And then, you know, one of the things I learned at Wharton that I've always stuck with, and we don't do it very well in healthcare or academics, you should always have five people under you that think they can do a better job than you and three that are right. A lot of times in my world, Joe, and I'm sure you've seen this with healthcare leaders. Once people get to a certain stage, they're afraid to get somebody better or more talented than they are, especially if if they're younger, because it's almost the opposite of good succession planning. It's like, as long as there's a huge gulf between me and number two, then they can't fire me. I did just the opposite. I went and said, who is the best physician leader in the country? And I went and met with him and he said, well, you know, that's very nice that you want me to be the head of your clinical pillar. I want your job. And I said, great. So it's somewhat on my timeline. Let's help you do that. I don't want you stabbing me in the back, but I think you can get that job or I'll work with you together. And it turns out he's an incredibly good operational leader. Some of the things that I can do very well, like philanthropy and innovation, in the partnerships with Silicon Valley is a piece that he could use. So he's running our 14 hospitals. I don't have to worry about that. The provost of our two campus universities, is the former chair of pathology at Penn. Again, I don't have to pretend I'm that person. Same thing with innovation and philanthropy. So I get to be the orchestra conductor. If you're leading a large, diverse entity, you should be setting the course for what the is going to look like 10 years from now. You don't have to be the one at every meeting. Set the course. The worst thing you can do is micromanage stuff that you're not expert at. My team has appreciated that I've given them the ball. I don't go to the capital budgeting process meetings because I'm not going to be helpful. I don't go to the integrated strategic financial process meetings because I'm not going to be helpful. But I set the course every year of this is what I'd like us to look like. We look at everything as now, near, and far. At the end of it, we just completed a budget. I look and you know, say, yep, and then I'll tweak it a little bit. Here's three or four priorities that you missed. Let's just put them into a presidential priorities piece, and you know we don't have to redo the budget. It's being willing to have people that are better than you at certain things and not be threatened by it. Being willing to spend a lot of your time looking at what the place is going to look like 10 years from now. I'm a big fan of succession planning the day after you start a job. I think we start succession planning way too late. So I've done that. I know you talk about this a lot, the ability to mentor folks. You know, we have this great young woman, PhD, who I made the head of our NCI Cancer Center. I've been mentoring her for eight years. And she just became the CEO of the American Cancer Society. She wasn't afraid to tell me when she got it offered and get my advice and the fact that I said, great, I think you should take it, even though, frankly, it's a big pain that I have to now recruit a new head of the NCI Kids Center right before an NCI site visit. Can I give you one example? This is really an emotional one for me. So I have this resident when I was program director and chair at Lehigh Valley Health Network that has now become the president of the Associated Professors of and College, and they get to have a presidential address. And it was out in California And she asked if I would do it. And frankly, you know, it was at a really busy time. I said, sure, I'll do it for you. So I get there and, you know, I was expecting the introduction. Steve is a professor of OBGYN. He's a blah, blah, blah. She doesn't do any of that. She said, well, you can read all about Steve, but I'm going to tell you a story. I was a second year resident at have Valley Health Network. And I was doing a case with an attending and we had a negative thing happen I think it was actually him, but he just really yelled at me. He said, you're incompetent. You should be going to family practice. Shouldn't be an OBGYN. And this is at a time in the eighties that it was tougher for women surgeons. So I had the next case. It was a very difficult case. I was doing it with the chief resident and I see her in the O.R. lounge. And you know, she was not crying, but I could tell she wasn't her normal. I said, what's going on, uh, "Uh, Nothing. Finally, she tells me a story. And I went to the chief resident, and said, good news. You're going to get to go home early and hang out with your wife. I'm doing this case with this person, second year resident. Difficult case. She did it with me. She was excellent. So she told that story. Now, here's the point, Joe. If you would put a gun to my head and say, you know, do you remember anything like that you did important to Patrice? I mean, of course, I remembered it once she said it. But the fact that that was so important in her life
0: is what I get proud of. Isn't it true that some of the most important things that happen to people in life, we're not aware of them, but part of what you have though, clearly you've got a charism, you care about people, you've got this authentic desire to help bring out the best in people that's clear in your leadership style. And it's also a trait that we see at Dale Carnegie in the most effective leaders, right? I mean, there are leaders who belittle others, are leaders who put other people down, they might get certain results. But the kind of leader who can bring out the very best in someone else and achieve the kind of results that you've achieved, that's really inspirational leadership.
1: It gets down to personal connections. So I started my practice in Allentown, Pennsylvania, when there was a glut of OBGYNs. And literally, people told me I'd starve. At that time, I was pretty thin. I said, That's okay. I don't eat that much. There's no way you can start a practice. I started with one other person. And, you know, what we found is we just did some things that now seem obvious to me, but were like really unique. If you think about OBGYN, people are coming in once a year. Before we did any of the, you know, pap smear stuff or anything, I would just ask them about what was going on in their life. And, you know, they get something like, well, you know, my son, you know, Josh is on the tennis team at Swarthmore and my husband, unfortunately, just, you know, had surgery of prostate cancer, but I think he's doing okay. Oh, and by the way, I'm taking Italian lessons. Um, you know, so we just, okay, all right. And then we do the exam. But I'd write each of those things down. The next year when I saw that patient, I'd go, so how's Josh doing on the tennis team? And I I hope your husband's okay. And Tell me something in Italian. That became viral. They felt comfortable talking to me about things that might be going wrong in their marriage or something else. And we became the busiest practice in this town where they told me to start because that was before Twitter, but that became, our doctor actually cares about us. That's a style that I've taken now that I have 35,000 employees pre-pandemic, every Tuesday, you know, we're right in Center City, Philadelphia. And there's, you know, the hot dog carts, the halal <laughs> carts. Every Tuesday, I would just hang out lunchtime at the hot dog cart. And it tended to be, you know, the line was the environmental service workers, the nurses, you know, the frontline workers. They loved it, you know, because we'd just chat. And I'd say, so how's it going? Yeah, you know, right, we have a new benefits program. You know, how's it going? Got to the point where they'd say, hey, it really stinks. Or they want to take selfies. It was fun. So we had this thing where we did have a new benefits program and I go to my senior vice president. So how's it going? I think it's going really well. Do people like the new prescriptions? Oh, yeah, yeah, they do. I said, no, they don't. I said, oh, yeah, they do. I said, no, they don't. After my third, no, they don't. I'll say, all right, this is like poker. You tell me how you know and I'll tell you how I know. Well, I know because the uh, vice president of benefits reports to me told me that. OK, you know, that's like saying I have two deuces. I'm going to give you three aces. I talked to the people at the hot dog cart and they hate it. And let me tell you the stories they told me. Literally, they have this $200 deductible that they have to do and they couldn't get their medication, but we changed it. Here I am as a CEO of, you know, a 35,000 person group that was doing that and getting that information. And this particular person who's no longer with us, wasn't, but it also sent the signal to the people under me. If you're going to say that the frontline workers like something, you darn well better be talking to the frontline workers.
0: But you clearly are, and you're unassuming, and you're listening, and you are demonstrating a level of caring, and clearly a level that got people confident and comfortable telling you the truth, which is one of the hard things of leadership, right? I mean, sometimes you get to a certain point, and are people going to tell you the truth? But you've been able to get that.
1: I like to use the word overcommunication, especially when things are tough. It's not as important the medium as that you're consistent. So you know, think about COVID. I couldn't go out and hang out at the hot dog cart because hot dog cart wasn't there. Since I'm not practicing anymore, people didn't want me going and roaming the halls because that was just one more PPE. So I got into this thing. Literally, we did a Friday letter, a Friday video. But here's the thing. It wasn't a Friday letter of, you know, this is what we did. It was both an informative and a fun Friday letter. But most importantly, I took what is my passion, which is music, and we would do the Friday playlist. It would hit a lot of themes, right? Anywhere from during the racial unrest and injustices that we're seeing, I would go back to my DJ days and go back to things like the Staple Singers, I'll take you there, talk about where some of that happened since I'm older than a lot of the people that I was communicating with talk about things like the impressions and albums they do like, this is my country. But then we would also have some fun stuff like, uh, all right, look, at some point you're going to have to start dating again, for those of you who are interested in doing that. So play a little Roberta Flack, first time ever I saw your face, because at some point <laughs> you're going to be Zooming with somebody that's been on a mask. And that became something people look forward to. And literally that became people would send us suggestions And then we started to have people actually, these talented people that did songs for Jefferson that we would put on the communication. So it really became something that people looked forward to. Then we would start to highlight heroes and mostly unsung heroes. So-and-so environmental service did this and this. And we really hit the really tough topics. I mean, the tough topics of some things we had to do after the surges, we lost $290 million. Like most health entities, we made a decision not to furlough or lay off any of our 35,000 employees. But then we had to make some changes in benefits. And I was very honest with them. I said, look, yes, you're gonna take a one year, including me, I'll take a disproportionate amount of hit on this, but that means the person next to you will still be employed. We made a conscious decision to keep everybody employed and have us all starting top down, take a little bit of a hit for a year. That was a whole lot better than if I had just done that or not explained why we were doing things. So everything's, I think it's been honest, it's been transparent. If somebody has something negative to say, sometimes I'll put that in the communication without the name. You know, here's what somebody said. Let me tell you what I wrote back to them. So it gives people the feeling, what I've heard from them, it's almost like every Friday, you're doing an boy or an girl, And then the playlist is really sort of fun because you gave us the history around it. I do think that putting that personal piece in and adding that passion matters.
0: It clearly has made a huge difference in terms of how people are engaging at Jefferson. You know, as I look and listen to all that you've shared, Stephen, you have, I mean, so many qualities you've shared, such rich insights. One quality that I see in you that connects to a lot of things is a self-confidence, a conviction it's a lack of fear, right? So you talked about hiring people who might otherwise threaten other leaders. But you say, no, no, I want these leaders. You talked about not planning a career. Some people really try to plan everything down methodically because they're worried about what about this and so forth. But you're living in a way that demonstrates a tremendous amount of confidence. What advice would you have for people who maybe aren't where you are yet? They have fear, they've got insecurity. So you talk about someone who's surrounded by people and maybe they feel threatened by those people. Or you talked about somebody who... Is afraid if they lose their job that it might be catastrophic and then they're not going to be able to recover. What advice do you have for people around building themselves up, building their confidence, and overcoming fear?
1: So, I think what I'd say is everybody has different goals and different ways of doing things, but don't expect to have a non incremental career if you're not willing to take non incremental chances. I decided I wanted to have a non incremental career. This was when Allegheny went bankrupt. It was the largest bankruptcy in medical school history in Philadelphia. Tenet had taken over the hospitals, the for-profit. This was pre-computer. I wrote the head of Tenet a six-page letter of why he needed me. I said, you're going to be clueless around the academic piece, and I've got a piece of both. So they actually invited me down. That wasn't the right job for me, but the dean at that time of the medical school said, I need you. Talk about no-limits approach. I took over CEO of the practice group of a group that was losing $120 million that had just been bankrupt. And the beautiful thing about that, they were willing to have a creative, non qualified leader because before they weren't getting their checks cashed. Then the next thing I did was I became dean of what was called Medical College of Pennsylvania with my boss saying, You have to understand, tenant will probably close this hospital, which means you're out of a job. I can't protect you. I said, Okay. But, you know, it was sort of taking care of a dying parent. We did some really good things while tenant was getting rid of it. And that led to, you know, everything else happening. But going from, Here to there couldn't have happened if I wasn't willing to take a non-incremental piece. So some of it is you have to decide what your own risk tolerance is. I jump out of planes. I'm a pilot. That's one kind of person. doesn't mean everybody has to be like that. I have another friend that went to Wharton that said, you know, I want to be a chief medical officer at a progressively better place. Went out to Saginaw, Michigan, you know, a 200-bed hospital, became a chief medical officer, then became a chief medical officer at 300-bed hospital. That's another way of doing that. The way I feel it, I took an entrepreneurial approach in a different way than entrepreneurs do it, right? I sort of put my whole professional future into it, not as much dollars, but took pay cuts took a job that I knew if it didn't work out, I have no place else to go. So I took an entrepreneurial approach to leadership that not everybody should do, but decide what your risk tolerance is, decide where you think you'd like to go without getting too specific, I want to be this. And what I always tell people is, what do you want to be saying you're doing five years from now? Not what job are you in, but what do you like doing? And start moving toward a job that's doing more of those things and less of the
0: other things. I love it, Stephen. This is the Take Command podcast. One of the most important things we talk about in Dale Carnegie is living an intentional life. And that's really what your advice is. It's be intentional. It's take risks. I love what you're encouraging people to do relative to confidence. And really going back to your self-assessment, one of the first things you did was that self-assessment. So how do you today, as you look ahead, what are some things that you do to hone your skills, to hone your leadership, to continue to become a better leader?
1: Yeah, so I spend um, about a week a month out in Palo Alto. You know, one of the things that we've really differentiated Jefferson is what we call healthcare at any address. If you come down from Mars to Philadelphia in five years from now and say, where's Jefferson? I hope nobody can answer that. I hope what they're saying is, you mean Jefferson in my house or Jefferson in five micro hospitals? Oh, you mean the place where really, really, really sick people go? I think that's still a 10th of Walnut. So in order for me to be credible in that world, I have really spent about a quarter of my time living that world with the 24-year-old software engineers that went to Stanford when they were 15 and have a totally different mindset. And I've become a bit of a horse whisperer or translator between the two worlds. That gets me energized to come back and understand how far we have to go. The last book I wrote, Joe, was called Unhealthcare, a Manifesto for Health Assurance with Hey Montanesia. Haymont is the uh, original investor in Airbnb, Stripe, and Warby Parker. And he wrote a book called Unscaled. The concept being, it used to be, if you want to build a bigger, better hotel chain than Marriott, you have to build a whole lot of hotels. Now you build no hotels and bring them together, right? Warby Parker. I'm not building any stores next to Lens crafters. I'm not building any stores. Send me your prescription. Do it online. So the book we wrote sort of started out what if a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and a CEO of a 195-year-old academic medical center walked into a bar, got married, and had a kid? What would that kid look like of moving fast and breaking things versus, you know, the traditional healthcare ecosystem? And we've actually created that kid. It's called Tendo. It's basically looking at digital front doors. He's become one of the leaders in the country around responsible innovation because he doesn't want to just create companies. So we said, how do we not just make the wealthy healthier? I wrote an article called, we need a Greta Thunberg for healthcare. How do we turn healthcare inequities into a real campaign? That's what's been great for me about being that translator because I feel incredibly confident that we can do that digital transformation and get healthcare to join the consumer revolution. And I've been able to bring folks from that world into understanding why people like me go into not-for-profits and try to really make a difference in places like Philadelphia. Here's an example. Ken Frazier, the CEO of Merck, gave us $5 million because he recognized that an African-American man where he grew up in 18th and Tioga, one of the toughest neighborhoods in Philadelphia, has a 10 times increased risk of getting a stroke than where he lives today as an African-American man. We have that health care at any address because he said, look, I don't want you to do this at Jefferson. I want you to do this around 18th and Tioga. I want that to be the Fraser Center. We talked to our friends in Silicon Valley. We looked at ways that we could connect and get those people connected. We actually partnered with Temple University because that's their territory. Again, unheard of in academic medicine. You mean you're actually going to share a gift that somebody gave you. And then we found another donor that owns a strip mall there that gave us 10 years of free rent utilities. And now we're actually working with Comcast to get those people connected. Why? Because the number one reason that people got hospitalized for a pandemic in Philadelphia was not masking or social distancing or their genetic code. It was a zip code. Because we have zip codes, including that one, with 78% of people that don't have broadband. So they can't utilize telehealth and that kind of thing. So to me, that's how I stay energized. Going out there and saying, wait, we don't get up in the morning and talk about telebanking. <laughs> it's just the banks went from 90% in the bank to 90% home. That's who I want to learn from. I went out and met with the CEO of Walmart and one of the number two people from Target because I wanted to understand what happened when Amazon disrupted that industry that they didn't become Sears and Pennies. Because I said, that's how I'm looking at things now. I'm looking at everybody, you know, the one medicals of the world, the optimists of the world say, hey, I don't want to own hospitals because, you know, they're dinosaurs. When Amazon came into your market, there were some places, oh my God, nobody's ever going to store again. I have to create all E. Well, think about Circuit City. They didn't make it. Then there were Sears and Pennies said, what a stupid fad. People are always going to, you know, spend five hours in line on the day after Thanksgiving to do their holiday shopping. Well, you know, there are Sears and Pennies, Target and Walmart said, we're real good at what we do, but we, in one case, have to buy somebody that can do E for us and do it better than Amazon, and in one case, actually, you know, create that. That's what I want to be. I want to say, if you have pancreatic cancer, coming into Thomas Jefferson University Hospital is one of the best places in the country to be. By the way, you're not going to care how big the TV is or what the food is or what our digital strategy is. But for those 97% of people in Philadelphia that wake up and say, I'm not a diabetic patient or I'm not a congestive heart failure patient, I'm a person that would like to be able to get through my day without thinking about my diabetes or congestive heart failure, I want to be your partner. So that when you get sick, you're not going to go up and down the expressway to see who has the coolest billboard. I think that that's what's energized me is how can I be both? How can I be Target or Walmart?
0: Well, it's incredible how you've done that, what you've done at Jefferson and what you're doing with healthcare. The book on healthcare, your vision for the future of healthcare really is having a transformational impact on the lives of hundreds of millions of people. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your time here today. Inspirational leadership, so much richness in this uh, interview. Any closing thoughts for our listeners?
1: The last thing I'd say is create a personal mission for yourself. I know that sounds very MBA-ish. but I always figured I'd have three phases. I love the fact that I delivered 2,500 babies. I actually gave a talk to a medical student. And as I was rushing out, she said, look, my mom will kill me if I don't talk to you. I thought it was going to be about tuition. You delivered me 31 years ago at Sacred Heart Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I mean, so I love that part of my life. I love the second phase. I'm leaving Jefferson in 2024. And I love the fact that my third phase is going to be a blank page. You know, everybody's going to ask me in 2023, what are you doing? I say, I have no idea. On July 1st, 2024, I'm going to sit at home, play piano. And my guess is somebody will call, and it could be an academic thing, it could be a healthcare thing, it could be a uh, Silicon Valley thing. I think there's something nice about looking at your life in different stages. And the last thing I'd say is, I've had a lot of mentors that said, I'm not going to really do anything fun till I retire. And then, you know, you have all heard those stories a year later, they have something happen. So my wife and I think about a book that we read called 20 More Summers. What are you doing that's unique in each of those summers? My last advice would be you want to have a lot more
0: memories than regrets. Awesome, Stephen. Well, I can't wait to see what your phase three holds. It'll be really exciting. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. It'll be fun to find out what you do. But thank you for the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you for being with us on Take Command. And I know our listeners are going to love hearing this podcast. Thank
1: you, Joe. It was really a lot of
0: fun. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie Podcast.